While this podcast contains little to no explicit material, it is sprinkled with some uncensored swears. Listener discretion is advised. Grief is not apparel, not like a dress, a wig, or my sister's high-heeled shoes. It is darker than the man I love who, in my fantasies, comes for me in a silver six-cylinder chariot. While I wait, I'm the only man who loves me. They call me Star because I listen to dreams and wishes. But grief is darker. It is a white dress that covers my body. It is a wig that does not rest gently on my head. Essex Hemphill, Homicide, excerpted from Marlon Riggs' Tongues Untied in a Bridge for this piece. And, if I know anything at all, it's that a wall is just a wall and nothing more at all. It can be broken down. Asada Shakur, I believe in living. It's only once a year, but it's over. Everything got a little more colorful for 30 days because of the rainbow. Streets were blocked off for a weekend for a Technicolor parade and fun fest with security from traditional oppressors. The mood itself is happy and, well, gay. It's Pride Month, and you're supposed to feel good about your identity and orientation if you're queer, but it's become fucking difficult as a trans person in America, as the landscape has become incredibly hostile and tiresome as the days go by. As it stands... Anti-trans legislation has ramped up in recent months. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill banning trans students from sports, vetoed money for counseling for Pulse survivors five years after it happened. Yes, it has been that long. And said no to funding for an LGBTQ shelter for the Zebra Coalition. All of this in June. 41 states have had anti-trans bills on the docket at some point this year. Former sports star Caitlyn Jenner placed a bid to run for California governor while taking the gold medal in mental gymnastics by saying that trans kids shouldn't be in sports and echoing turf talking points. And this is happening under a new administration that has shown to be timid in keeping campaign promises to not just help the marginalized, but the rest of Americans a whole year into a pandemic. All we want is to breathe, find a little space so we can move in between and keep one step ahead of ourselves. Speaking of which, we're still struggling in the thick, non-kinky chokehold of capitalism. The rich got richer and the poor became poorer with COVID-19. Even as vaccinations ramp up for free, a rare event in the minefield of American healthcare, it's getting harder to make ends meet. The minimum wage should have been increased many yesterdays ago, but corporations are learning the hard way that the way things were were not great to begin with. People are also learning that wage theft is indeed real, and jobs that ask for experience for $12 an hour is no longer feasible. You can't stimulate the economy without having the funds to do so amongst the masses. So then who will buy your rainbow merch when June comes around? The concept of pink capitalism, or the more common rainbow capitalism, has been around for a while, but 2021 has shown the worst of it. Walmart, while having a rare 100% rating on the 2021 Corporate Equality Index from the Human Rights Campaign, has given money to state legislatures sponsoring anti-trans bills since 2018. Corporations market the Pride merch with the new Progress flag, which includes the trans colors but nearly exclusively focus on cisgender gays. Plenty of influencers gave devastating reads on Target's Pride collection, among others. 
Lego announced a pride set that is rated for the 18 plus crowd going against the everyone is awesome namesake because kids can't possibly be queer. Video platforms like YouTube and TikTok continue to be criticized for censoring queer people from the almighty algorithm. Tumblr, even in after the sweeping ban of adult content of late 2018 that included the female presenting nipples and other queer things, managed to don the various colors of pride because it's what you're supposed to do in June. Commercials for Pride Month reek of the artificial allyship that can only exist in their manufactured environments. In Hollywood, Disney tries to have it both ways with their perpetual announcement of the first openly queer character in a movie and rainbow merch of Stitch against the Ohana Means Family quote from the film, while they shudder Blue Sky as they were preparing to finish their adaptation of the webcomic Nimona because it was seen as competition. Hell, it took at least a decade for Disney to actually acknowledge Loki as gender fluid with his spinoff show, with roughly a minute devoted to queer lip service in the course of five hours. The whole bisexuality-pansexuality discussion is a separate thing. Netflix debuted a trailer for their upcoming adult animated series, Q-Force, towards the end of June, with queer and heterosexual members crossing the aisle to express their disdain over yet another show that believes that all fags are flaming is still a fresh source of humor. Streaming platforms will have their collection of queer works, but only go so far as to highlight the letters of LGB and possibly the T, and ignoring the Q. And even then, you're getting a very limited selection in most places. Once July 1st hits, it's off with the costumes and back in the closet until next year, as the larger struggle continues for recognized humanity. Unless it's award season, of course, then by all means be the sad and tortured faggot. Look, it's not enough to only be visible and give people a heightened awareness of your identity for 30 days, because it's not something you can rebury. Gender does indeed exist on a spectrum and as a social construct. Biological and gender essentialism does a lot of damage that can lead to suicide. Bathroom bills are still being pushed as a moral good for the children, despite everyone needing to piss and shit. Trans people are still murdered. Bodily autonomy is still an issue for those who are disabled and trans because it's still assumed that cripples cannot be faggots and cripples can't fuck except as a punchline in works like Freddy Got Fingered. When the range of human sexuality supersedes ability. After all, you can't have revolutionary politics if you don't include disabled people. Recent Australian studies have found autistic people are seven times more likely to be trans or gender non-conforming. 70% identify as not heterosexual, and one in eight queer neurodivergent folk attempted suicide in the past year, with more than one in three recording an attempt in their lifetime. Compared to able-bodied people, it's twice as high and five times compared to able-bodied cis-hets. Once you add intersectional identities to the mix, and the rainbow becomes more vibrant with this stark warning. Deny me and be doomed. So... How do you express all of that in the cinematic arts? You could go with the Oscar bait route of The Danish Girl, Dallas Buyers Club, The Crying Game, or Boys Don't Cry. The Cruel Punchline in Family Guy, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Or The Naked Gun 33 and the Third, The Final Insult. The Psycho Killer, Keskese in Sleepaway Camp, Dressed to Kill, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Ticked off trannies with knives, a piss-poor attempt at aping the grindhouse aesthetic, and CSI. The sex worker on the streets in Tangerine, All About My Mother, The Hangover Part 2, in a year of 13 moons, and Pose. It could be conflated with drag like The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, with Terrence Stamp as a trans woman, and the inferior American cousin, to Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And the film adaptations of musicals like Rent, The Rocky Horror Show, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. This list is not exhaustive, 
And we don't have time to unpack all of the baggage they carry. However, we are going to be looking at that last one, Hedwig. Now, it's no surprise that when you think of a musical involving any level of gender-bending fuckery, it's Rocky Horror, and rightfully so. A staple of midnight screenings and Halloween canon, this nearly 50-year-old film shows that people have been more than willing to indulge in a mental mindfuck. It's one of the more famous films involving audience participation as part of the routine outside of the room, the cis-heterosexual equivalent. Viewers cosplay as the characters, or at least the aesthetic of the Transylvanians. They dance and sing and gleefully toss rice and toast at the screen while shouting the litany until the very end in a perverse mass. But at the end of it all, Brad and Janet don't have the time to process the trauma of that night over at the Frankenstein place, involving some dead faggots in the most entertaining fashion. Their rose-tinted world is gone. For the audience, they can leave the theater and shed the queerness of the night like one of their costumes. Two hours of absolute pleasure does not fully erase the issues that encompass the queer identity. So then what of Hedwig and their story? It's one of gender queerness that wrestles with dichotomies, East versus West Germany, Adam and Eve, the gender binary, oppressor and victim, and so much more. Let's be clear here. Hedwig isn't trans or intersex. That botched surgery which resulted in the titular angry inch happened as a cis male who happened to be effeminate, as noted when Hedwig admits to being born as a slip of a girly boy. We only know what's in their pants via the song Angry Inch, but we never see it because it doesn't fucking matter. Not unless Cronenberg adapts it. The text states that Hedwig is genderqueer, and that's the point. Hedwig states later in the film that it's what I have to work with, and it's within that line that we have a summary of the human experience. The opening track, Tear Me Down, subtly introduces us to a larger motif in the work, the collage, citation, and art form. From its Dada roots to the DIY mentality of punk, the collage is a critical part of Hedwig's ex expression and an allegory for ourselves. Hedwig's main outfit in the number is a patchwork denim piece and a cape resembling graffiti from the Berlin Wall and a star-spangled quilt on the back. Yitzhak's exposition about the rise and fall of the wall is illustrated, thanks to Emily Hubley, via Xeroxes of the Berlin Wall and Cell Animation. The Origin of Love repurposes material from Plato's Symposium and the Apocryphal Gospel of Thomas and tosses in some Indian and Egyptian mythology for good measure. Jan Hedwig is forced to play inside the oven and we see two different collages of various musicians and pop culture icons of the era. Tommy Gnosis's guitar is bedazzled with illustration, glitter, and cut-out photos. Exquisite Corpse, itself a form of writing collage, and drawing challenge, and shown briefly in Tear Me Down, refers to Hedwig's body, and at one point the film splits into six parts, with each section's edge designed to look like scraps of paper. The film itself ends with a tattoo on Hedwig's body, a different kind of canvas from which has borne suffering. By internalizing their previous trauma, it becomes a weapon on everyone near her. We see the start of it, within the film's chronology from opening logos to credits, when Hedwig unplugs Yitzhak's microphone towards the end of Tear Me Down. Hedwig continues to antagonize the clientele at each Bilgewater's restaurant. It's presumed that Hedwig was molested by her father as a child as his abusive mom throws him out after discovering the two of them sleeping together, but it's not exactly clear, even in innuendo, how can I say who touched me most? Song Angry Inch ends in a food fight. You also have the laundromat scene where Hedwig chastises a bandmate for putting a bra in a dryer, and the manager runs off to console him. No sooner does Tommy Gnosis slip his hand down Hedwig's skirt and touch the Angry Inch, we have Hedwig throw him out of the trailer. Hedwig ends up shredding Yitzhak's passport before his eyes after gaining the role of Angel in Rent. When not in flashback, we have Hedwig shadow her protégé's more successful tour as a bitter stalker of sorts. And it all comes to a head in Exquisite Corpse, 
with the destruction of equipment and outfits and Hedwig revealing her tomato tits and squishing them all over herself. It is within this sequence that the film queers the emotional energy of Pink Floyd The Wall by having our protagonist wanting out of the shitstorm they're in. Unlike The Wall, Hedwig's trial results in transforming once more into a new being and walking into the world naked and unafraid. Of course, any work will have its imperfections, and they might be more intense as the years go by. The work as a whole is still a cisgender work from a cisgender man. Even though the intent of Hedwig is that there shouldn't be a gender binary, the role is still performed by actors who live within that space. Sure, we've had gay actors as Hedwig, such as Neil Patrick Harris and Anthony Rapp from Rent, giving Hedwig some shared DNA, and women like Lena Hall and Brat Pack star Ali Sheedy, as well as productions involving a rotating cast of Hedwigs for a more fluid experience. But when it consistently excludes whole groups of actors, is it really a gender of one as the musical so proudly proclaims? This argument came last year during an Australian production when the show was postponed after an outcry of another cis man securing the role of Hedwig. While the creators have stated that the role of Hedwig is open to anyone who can tackle it and, more importantly, anyone who needs it, there's something to be said about having that insight as a trans person that can elevate a character. John Cameron Mitchell, the original Hedwig, has claimed to have seen trans people perform as Hedwig in some productions, but not really elaborating where it happened as well as saying that what Hedwig is doing is more along the lines of drag and not as a transition of any gender identity. The less said about the credit for the tranny hooker when Tommy and Hedwig reunite, the better. So what the fuck do we even have here? Is this an alternative to Rocky Horror that's a product of its time? Is it a groundbreaking work in American cinema? Is it the embodiment of the divine alchemy of the self? It is all of these. It's a start, and it takes all kinds to make the revolutions. So listeners, whether you like it or not, here's Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Welcome to the Omniplex. Hey. I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what up, peeps? Hello, everyone. We know it's been a hot minute, but we're back. We are back. We know we are outside, a little outside of Pride Month, but it's been a very difficult month. And, uh, well, why should it be restricted to June? Yeah, again, once July 1st hits, you just strip away all the rainbows and go back. Pretend the gays never happened. Until next year, kids. Yep. Get back in the fucking closet. Screw that, Julia Kay, forever. <laughs> and that is me shouting out a fantastic writer you all should be reading. But yes, uh, so this is the, I know this was my first time uh, seeing this film like ever, like any incarnation of this story. Yeah, uh, which is weird because I've heard all three soundtrack like versions of the soundtrack. Yeah, for history, Hedwig started off as like a character that was then workshopped into a larger off-Broadway stage production, and then it was turned into the movie, and then a decade down the line, it got an official Broadway revival, as well as a Riverdale tribute. Hmm. God damn that show. Yeah, I did not watch the Riverdale episode for this. I'm just... I, I legit have no concept of Riverdale other than... One of the Sprouse twins is in it, and <laughs> it's dark and edgy Archie. That's all I know. So, unfortunately, yeah. you're not going to get that analysis tonight. Yeah. <laughs> the Broadway revival was uh, Neil Patrick Harris, right? Yes, and others. And others. Yes, but primarily uh, NPH. From what images i've seen yeah he can definitely pull off the look of hedwig since he sort of did that in a series of unfortunate events what we're looking at tonight is actually a box office bomb 
Yeah. Yeah. A budget of six million, but it made back three point six million. However, there's an asterisk attached because it premiered on September twelfth, two thousand one. Mm, the country was otherwise occupied. Very much so. Mm, ouch. Would it have made more in another time, though? Uh, probably. Yeah, that is unfortunate timing. Yeah, but you can't really work around, you know, terrorism. Yeah. It, it's not just something you can... <laughs> I, yeah, there, yeah. Yeah, there's just no two ways about it. It... Yeah, it it got smacked with the bad luck stick very hard. Yeah, I remember uh, like my only awareness of this at the time I was in high school was uh, I had heard like it, it's an it's a very interesting title. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of grabs you, and the only association I had at that time was Harry Potter. Yeah, <laughs> you were not the only one to make that joke. Yeah. Nor will you be the last. Nah. Not in this lifetime. I guess for me, my uh, intro to it was like I was browsing like this thick ass book of like movie recommendations from 2005. Like from the description, I'm like, okay, this is intriguing. I'll just bookmark this for later. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't get around to actually watching it until... Last year, when uh, Criterion announced a, it, it would be adding that to its esteemed collection. So I picked that up. Uh, honestly, probably somewhere back in the 2000s, I rented a lot of movies, and this was just one of them. I had a weirdo video store, so I rented a lot of weird stuff, and, you know, <laughs> I wanted to be broad. So I think my first, like, actual exposure to it was... Uh, uh, working at my job a couple of years ago and I'm putting the the soundtrack on and I think I got the original one like it was on Spotify of course uh, then I would discover the other two the movie version and the you know, the NPH version which you know my preferred is the NPH version because <laughs> uh, he just he just belts it and his version of Sugar Daddy Sugar Daddy yeah uh is more rocky which i which i like like it's it's real funny because even listening to the soundtrack it gives you just the barest idea of what's in the actual like play slash film like it's uh not easy to follow a story <laughs> not not really and it's not until you know you watch the film that it sets up and expands upon it it's backstory. Yeah, I think this this just watching it for the cast was my first time experiencing that, and it was almost nothing like I expected it to be. Yeah, it it just kind of it's a <laughs> thing. Like it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first watched it, I'm like, okay, I I can you know dig you know some of this, but the more that I watched it and studied it, especially for this cast, the more I began to dislike it yeah for reasons which we shall get into as as time goes on because there are a good many issues with this film yeah which is disappointing yeah because i really like the soundtrack and i think it still holds up yeah yeah the soundtrack is good no no question it it's the story that needed yeah needed a bit more work hedwig and the angry inch is a band uh, it's a punk band, and uh, it is headed up by Hedwig and about mm, three or four side members. Uh, they are kind of playing like the worst gigs in town, uh, often next to Tommy Gnosis concerts, which are um, the more successful version of you know Hedwig and. Uh, their music, which uh, Tommy Gnosis has basically stolen a couple of the songs that Hedvig wrote. Yeah, it basically starts with that simple premise. Like they're just playing like buffets, like Denny's style restaurants. 
Worse than Denny's. Worse than Denny's, yeah. Uh, With a very, very unwilling crowd everywhere they go. Hedvig being very in your face to the patrons. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's punk after all. And as it goes on, you know, Hedvig does does various monologues. This could almost be like a one-man show if it weren't for, you know, some of the side characters. But it kind of evolves into more. And, uh, you know, the songs kind of play in a little bit to the plot, you know, as the uh, as it goes on. Hedvig meets Luther, gives uh, Hedvig sweets and is Luther who wants to take Hedvig to America and, uh, you know, can't do it as a couple uh, unless I guess Hedwig proves that uh, they are a woman. So they hatch kind of a plan to uh, get them to uh, uh, cut off appendages so that, you know, they can go over, get married and stay in America. Well, that kind of backfires as of course, you know, as the song goes, the surgery got botched. Uh, Luther leaves Hedwig for, another man so Hedvig now lives in a trailer and meets Tommy Gnosis you know which that's kind of later in the story later in the movie that whole background mm-hmm. Tommy Gnosis is 17 by the way yes not in present but when they've met like it's uh I think the impression given is it's been some years since at at least a year or two probably but at the same time though it that we're we're getting into further issues, but yes, plot, 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 plot. Okay, yeah. So Hedvig gets into a relationship with Tommy Gnosis after showing him. Well, the... well, Tommy. It Hedvig christens. Uh, yes. Yeah. Christens him Tommy Gnosis, like after trying to find like a persona, and after well. I'll skip over that detail of how they meet, but basically uh, they invite him to a show, uh, leaves the, the, the Hedvig and the angry inch business card. And uh, Tommy goes to show and is awestruck. And uh, then they meet after and he's like, I don't think I could do what you do. And they're like, yeah, sure you can. <laughs> so basically teaches him everything that they know and uh uh they form a relationship and write songs and uh well tommy is scared off when they try to have sex and so after that he goes on to uh become a big rock star and that's how it goes down and uh later they meet back up tommy is offering uh hedvig um like official writing credit on some of the songs and well they're in a car and they hit a truck which you know makes headlines like they're fine but apparently it kind of sends tommy's career into a spiral uh which makes uh hedvig famous uh the newspapers think that uh hedvig is a hooker that that Tommy picked up. So that's what kind of ruins his reputation. After some heartfelt songs, Hedvig transforms into basically Tommy's persona. And uh, yeah, basically kind of comes to terms with who they are and uh, goes off into the street naked. And that's the last we see. Yeah, it's that's that's a basic summary of the film. Do we want to get into the positives first? Yeah, we can get into yeah. the positives. The origin of love. Just mm-hmm. the entire sequence. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, really good. Yeah. It's beautiful animation. Again, borrowing from Plato's Symposium and uh, the Gospel of Thomas here and there. And mishmash of everything. And you get this lovingly animated sequence from uh, Emily Hubley, who is 
the a daughter of Faith and John Hubley. Legends. I've got a book by them. Yes. Yeah, she does a lot. Well, a few short films here and there, but primarily this is a legacy animation. That's pretty neat. Like she did like some of the illustrations that you would see like in uh, Tear Me Down with, with those graphics. And then like the end, I guess you would call it collaboration animation at, at the end during Midnight Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Origin of Love, easily one of the highlights. Also the sentiment behind Wig in a Box, one of the more highly cited songs from this musical yes and uh yeah that's another version where i prefer the nph just simply for the line you know now it's time for you to sing the beautiful words that i wrote and then i put on some makeup lovely (laughs) put on the eight track what's an eight track (laughs) just that little slip in yeah nice nice touch acknowledging the time yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, because Hedwig grew up in East Berlin, mm-hmm. which, like, if not when it was built, but, like, shortly thereafter, which kind of tells you when Hedwig was born and how old Hedwig is, mm-hmm. which will come later. But, yeah, uh, the sentiment of Wig in a Box in, in that, you know, just, like, this simple costume adornment can help bring about euphoria and how you uh express your gender that it's a it's a noble sentiment it still has resonance yeah Uh, it does yeah the angry inch song is in itself leaning more towards like the punk end of things but i prefer the uh neil patrick harris version because it sounds a little bit angrier than what we hear in the movie. Yeah. Like that one definitely has a bit more edge to it. And it's kind of like this angry, like that pissed off faggot punk that you would hear in bands like uh, a pansy division, you know, group groups like them that do speak from experience. Yeah. Like uh, the, especially the line, which I can only hear it now. Uh, his version when I uh, uh, hear the song is like uh, he took the good stuff and ran. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, where it's like Hedwig's lament that segues into Exquisite Corpse and yes, yeah. Uh, Exquisite Corpse. It's like the production itself within the context of the film is one of the more kinetic pieces especially with the cinematography, the, yeah, the strobing, which I'm finding as I get older, I'm having more and more difficulty watching that stuff. Same here. Yeah, strobe effects are just ain't doing it for me at all. Yeah, I've I've never really been able to. You know, I did not appreciate that uh, strobing fight scene in Matrix Revolutions. The Rise of Skywalker, it broke me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Rise of Skywalker is bad, but... Gaspar Noé did it the worst. Oh, my. Noé was someone who, when I was in my weird video store phase, I just really hated. Noé was the person that made, that put an epilepsy warning midway through his film while it was strobing. Yeah, that's why I hate him. Oh, wow. Like, had already started the sequence and then put a trigger warning? Yes. Oh, that's awful. That's why I hate him. In a lesser-known sequence called We Fuck Alone. Oh, man. (laughs) Which is intensely explicit, but it's 23 minutes of constant strobing and masturbation. Mm. Oh, my. Unsimulated. And the the epilepsy warning does not come in until, like, two minutes in. Wow. That's that's kind of a dick move. And the warning strobes itself. Uh, that's an ultimate dick move. So yeah, okay. Exquisite corpse. Um, a- again, leaning more towards like the punk end of the music spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 
honestly, it's kind of a shame it's abridged in the film. Yeah? Yeah, because, like, there, there's, like, a, a bridge within Exquisite Corpse that has, like, this beautiful lyric. The automatist's undoing, the whole world starts unscrewing as time collapses and space warps. You see decay and ruin, I tell you, no, 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 you make such an exquisite corpse. I kind of wanted to uh, have that in in the film, but that's just me. All film adaptations and musicals make uh, some edits to their music, I find. But, but the thing is that this was directed by Hedwig. Yes, this is true. Like, written and directed. Yeah, written and directed and performed. Mm-hmm. So, you you could have easily just put that in there. Now, there are some songs that were indeed left on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. And honestly, for good reason, because I, I can't... A, I can't remember them, because mm-hmm. they sound very generic rock. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, uh, if you if you pressed me, I wouldn't be able to name which songs were left out. Yeah, see, there yeah. you go. <laughs> so but, yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I I wish that lyric was put back in into the film, but that's just me. What about all of y'all? What what positives do you see in this? I just think that uh, I like I like the music. Yeah, and uh, it's well acted. Yeah, it is very well acted. I liked being able to see like um, like how the songs wove in out of the story. And it's like, uh, oh, okay, that makes more sense. I did also like being able to see essentially a music video for Origin of Love, which is a kick-ass song. I watched it with uh, my girlfriend who had already seen it. And uh, like she explained to me the plot. And I was like, yeah, but what's that like? <laughs> like in the film like the plot just describing the plot doesn't really like uh denote the experience you know yeah oh yeah so it's still even after having the plot described to me it's still nothing like i expected which is good yeah it was just it was just interesting to finally be able to uh see the story shall we get into the negatives i'm just gonna let you run here okay um so we brought up the fact that Tommy is 17. Now, Hedwig at this point can be assumed to be at least in their 30s. Mm-hmm. It's a 2001? Well, not not so much 2001 within like the release of the uh, film, right. the property, but within the timeline of the story. Within the timeline of the story, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we can as- safely assume that Hedwig is in their thirties, based upon being raised in East Berlin, uh, being dumped by Luther when the Berlin Wall came down, and seeing that on television, mm-hmm. and then just kind of going about their life. Now, the fact that I had to look up age of consent for this <laughs> cast. Okay, the age of consent in Kansas is indeed 17, but obviously that does not excuse yeah, that it's age still, gap. It's still pretty gross. Very gross. Um, the fact that Tommy is not technically an adult when they first meet, because how they meet is Tommy's jerking off in the bathtub while Hedwig is babysitting. Uh-huh. Which, which I should bring up. There isn't. Why the fuck couldn't Tommy just watch mm-hmm. the the baby himself? Why why the hell was Hedwig involved? Yeah, that's my question. I was very confused by all Be- that because Tommy is clearly old enough to do that. Mm-hmm. So I take it that Hedwig was maybe saying both of them, or it was just like in the neighborhood, or what was happening. I I legit don't know, but. Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Yeah. So, just like, kind of walks by with the baby, puts the baby down, uh, finishes, so to speak. Yeah, finishes Tommy off in the worst hand job I have ever put my eyes to. You don't see anything, but at the same time, you get an idea. 
you don't see anything, but you hear how loud it is. And no, no, that, that, no, 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 that's, and Tommy does not object to this at all. No, in fact, he just kind of, um, I feel gross talking about this. Moving along. Yes. Yeah. And then the fact that Wicked Little Town is is essentially the song that Hedwig wrote for Tommy to Tommy. Okay? Because Hedwig does admit while talking with her groupies or headheads, as is known in the pop culture sphere, that Hedwig did find Tommy to be incredibly hot. I'm like, no. Stop it. Get mm-hmm. some help. Stop. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So you have this grown-ass adult who has the hots for a minor mm-hmm. for all legal intents and purposes. Yes. And then grooming him via rock education to the point where you get the sequence where Tommy takes Hedwig through the wall of laundry that doesn't seem to end, and then they make out for a bit. Well, first breathing into his mouth, religious symbolism, which there's a lot of here. Oh, yeah. And then the slip down the skirt... And then... And then, oh, it's done. <laughs> yep, it's done. I ain't touching that. Yes. And so, uh, Tommy says, well, I'd better get back to my mother. And then that's when Hedwig basically rips into him. It's like, yeah, that's right. You go back to your mother. And, like, Tommy leaves. Yeah. Um, it, it's already bad enough that we're still doing and still having the whole predatory trans person discourse within goddamn 2021. It's kind of amazing we're still having. Yeah. Like, you'd be surprised how many people just shrug this off when they watch the movie. And it's only when you stop to think about it, it's like, wait a fucking minute. Yeah, I have to stop (laughs) to think about it. Like, I was thinking about the entire time, like, just how, like, he's very young. (laughs) Like, like, like there's a brief two-second shot of him basically playing for his version of Life Teen with with the church guitar band and whatnot. And I'm like, if you're still doing Life Teen, you shouldn't be trying to fuck a 30-year-old. Or the 30-year-old shouldn't be trying to fuck him. Well, yes, that yeah. too. Very much <laughs> yeah. that too. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My my mistake, actually. Uh, the Kansas Age of Consent is set at 16. Ew. Not any better. <laughs> no, not any better at all. No. Now, knowing that Hedwig is, you know, estimated to be about 30. Um, can I ask y'all a question? Sure. Where is AIDS? Mm. Um, look over there. <laughs> and I bring this up because the only insinuation that it even exists is in the depiction of the Rent logo in the flyer and on Yitzhak's shirt. Oh, yeah. And the fact that, you know, the whole side plot of him getting into Rent. Yeah. Getting into Rent as Angel. Yes. Yeah. Um, Because... John Cameron Mitchell was supposed to play Angel in the original production, but backed out because he was doing Hedwig. So he put Rent in there as an homage, but at the same time... Yeah, without acknowledging. Yeah, without acknowledging the fact that the AIDS crisis was still very much a thing going on, especially in the 80s when Hedwig immigrated to America. And... You know, not not really even a mention. Yeah, not a mention at all, which is weird because of how Hedwig describes again within the same uh, set of groupies how she would used to give a lot of jobs and they were called blow. I pointed this out yesterday, but I find it fascinating that of all things, the 
super white liberal Doonesbury did a better job, which is just wild to me because there, Gary Trudeau could have not done that. And he did. And honestly, the Andy Lippincott stuff is some of the best stuff he ever wrote. So go figure. Yeah. But yeah, Hedwig does exist in a timeline where the AIDS crisis definitely happened. The movie Philadelphia definitely existed. Marlon Riggs died, among other AIDS-related things. Like, the fact that Team America, World Police, talked more about AIDS than Hedwig. <laughs> and all all they had to do was repeat the word AIDS over and over and over and over and over and over again. Everyone has AIDS! My grandma and my dog are blue! AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. The Pope has got it and so do you! AIDS, 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 AIDS. But yeah, the fact that a bunch of fucking marionettes talked about AIDS more than, you know, an actual gay film. So you have Hedwig, who is either incredibly lucky or untested, but more than likely carrying several viral loads of HIV and somehow hasn't died yet. Again, you're talking about this and all I can think about is uh, Pose, which dealt with this at length. Yeah. And, and very well. Um, and it's also a great show. Yeah. I mean, considering Pose is part of that uh, drag canon that is more or less, well, not just inspired by the actual houses, but Paris is Burning, the iconic drag documentary, but not the only one. It's not the only one. You have to look to the 60s with The Queen as one of the earliest drag documentaries, but more people are more familiar with Paris is Burning thanks to motherfucking RuPaul. <laughs> but yeah, AIDS. Non-existent. It's just amazing the amount of TV shows that have come back for this season, you know, that filmed over COVID and just how many of them choose to acknowledge COVID or what they do with it is kind of fascinating to me. I mean, how didn't Captain Planet have an episode about AIDS? Yes. I believe they did. You can't get AIDS from casual contact. Hugging, touching, they're okay. You can use the same water fountain or eat in the same cafeteria. Deal with the real people. Okay, so where's your fucking excuse? It's of the era. You're dealing with LGBT material. Seriously, there's no excuse for this exclusion of AIDS. Yeah, no. If you didn't have rent on the shirt or the flyer or have that whole subplot and swap it out for any other musical, I wouldn't be making a deal out of this. Yeah. But I have to. Because you imply that AIDS does exist. You're doing Rent, for fuck's sake. Yeah. And and look, Rent is not good at all. The, the, prop, the intellectual property that is Rent is not good. I watched the film, unfortunately, and people needed to be punched in the face. Dick, crotch, wherever. Maced. Yeah. The film room covered that one on an earlier episode with uh, our friend uh, J.J. Hawkins. And uh, wow, yeah, it confused me because watching that film, it's like, I'm is this just a bad adaptation or is like the thing itself not very good? And the answer is, well, a little bit of both. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of both. Yeah, so you have, you know, Yitzhak trying out and securing the part of Angel, a character that does indeed die at the end of Rent of AIDS. Yes, Hedvig kind of disallows that by holding up his passport. Uh, let, let's just get into the whole abusive nature of Hedwig. Because Hedwig is not redeemed at the end by any means. No. No, Hedwig is still very much a prick, even if that prick is only one inch. Yeah, so to speak. Yeah, because, again, I, I outlined, like, most of the main points at, at the start, and just, like, honestly, the best character in Hedwig was not Hedwig, but Yitzhak. 
like it's not even clear what Yitzhak's relation is to Hedwig because because in the text it says that they are a married couple, but there's no mention at all of them being married. And within the context of the film, via deleted scenes, Hedwig and Yitzhak competed in drag shows out east where Yitzhak was a drag queen who went under the name Crystal Knock. Yes. I just really want to stop and point out, I just, oh God, you know, ouch. Yeah. And it's at that point within the deleted scene that backstage after Yitzhak gets a stellar performance and applause from the crowd that she undoes her wig and reveals a like a woman because like there are readings out there that says Yitzhak is a trans man but I don't know if I can fully it's very much left up to the audience's interpretation compared to Hedwig but yeah Crystal Knocked which not one of the worst drag names I've heard in fiction Again, that that title also goes to RuPaul as Rachel Slur in Tu Wong Fu, where she dons a sparkly Confederate dress. Oh boy. Yes. Oh my. Yes. Oh geez. It's one scene. Oh geez. Yeah, Yitzhak really gets like the worst of it because if you pay attention to the performance you can see like looks of desperation while he's in the background on Hedwig's doing her thing you you can see her just looking off into the distance and like half-heartedly uh singing along to the songs or providing the backup vocals because Hedwig does in a way see Yitzhak as more talented hence the unplugging of the microphone at the end of tear me down yeah and so, like, at, at the end of Hedwig during Midnight Radio, what Hedwig in this newly transformed self, not Tommy Gnosis, but just self, proceeds to pass the wig to Yitzhak. And we see, like, this sequence of Yitzhak crowd surfing as a woman with the wig on and a red sparkly dress kind of taking over the persona a little bit, a little bit. Yes. But at the same time, that's supposed to be seen as the ultimate redeeming factor in Hedwig's arc. Yeah. Everything kind of shifts over one. It seems. Yeah. Hedwig is an ass. I, I, I don't know how much more to go on about that abusive behavior. Yeah, it's it's not great all all the way through. No. No, not at all. Jeez. Yeah, especially in that moment with the passport. It's like just let him go. <laughs> like what's your pro like, you know, I think the line, you know, what what's wrong with you? What's your problem? Like, yeah, indeed. Yeah, and it's like the band somehow gets together, you know, at the end because they all leave and they don't really have a reason to continue working for Hedwig. There's no real need to support Hedwig's therapy vanity project. Yes, this is true. It's what this is. It's fair vanity and therapy at the same time. That's a good way of describing a lot of art. I mean, I've seen worse vanity projects, but they all get together at the end and stick it through through uh, Exquisite Corpse and Midnight Radio. And I don't know why, though. And it's not like the rest of the band has any character motivation. They're barely there. Yeah, they're barely characters. And then, who's up for some revisionism? Uh? Yes. Always. Okay, so, the film right now is going to turn 20 this year. And since that time... John Cameron Mitchell has stated that you have to choose to be trans as opposed to the commonly held belief in the trans community that you are. Are. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then 
wildly revising when Hedwig's surgery took place because he moved it from 20 to four. Okay. Hmm. Four. Even though, you know, having that surgery at four years old throws out all fucking logic out the window as to why the surgery happened. So now I'm forced to deal with gender queer child brides. Oh no. Because the whole point of the surgery was to be with Luther and escape to America. See, You're not is... going to be able to do that at the age of four. See, this is why I firmly believe that after an artist releases their work, they have a one-year moratorium. Then they, they, don't get to, they don't get to talk about it anymore. That's it. You're done. Yeah, I've seen plenty of people come back to their work. Um, George Lucas. Um, and just kind of really mess it up. Unless you're Mike, unless you're Mike Judge, and you're coming back to Beavis and Butthead, just to show us you could still do it exactly the same, don't go back. <clears throat> Richard Kelly, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not sure why I just said Richard actually, Kelly. Actually, you know there. what? Actually, no, I just have another exception. If you're yes. Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, y'all ah, doing yes. doing Bill and Ted three, y'all are exceptions Good. too. It, yes. <laughs> how about this? If you're not doing idiot comedy, don't go back. Right. 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 I mean, or oh, at two. Idiot comedy, Zephyr. Idiot comedy. Exactly. <laughs> Idiot comedy, you can always go back. Bizarrely. <laughs> yes. But yeah, because then you're going to have to contend with the fact that Luther potentially saw a naked four-year-old Hedwig in, in a field of rubble and say, I want some of that. Well, I I have to assume maybe it's naivete. I don't know that if uh, the surgery is changed to four, then literally everything else is shuffled around. But but at the same time, though, the surgery is a key part of Hedwig's arc. It is, yeah. And it's something that, unfortunately, cannot be moved within the timeline of the story. No, no. Without, again, you know, shuffling literally everything around and just kind of making it a completely different story. Because without Luther, there is no need for the surgery to happen. It's only because Luther shows up, takes an interest in Hedwig, and says, you know, let's do this. Let's be a couple. Unfortunately, you're going to have to be a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes no sense. Even if um, Hedwig was born intersex, that probably would have been done, like, at birth. Yeah, and even then, there are arguments about that. Yeah. I do not have the authority to speak on that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that amount of revisionism. Yeah, it's a little much. It's a lot. Like, it's your own work. How can you fuck it up that much? But... I digress. We've seen that happen thanks to a certain lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all taking it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mitchell has also stated in an interview with uh, gay magazine The Advocate that Hedwig was raped at some point before the surgery, but never says where it happened in the text. Okay. I, that has very J.K. Rowling... Uh, arbitrarily saying that uh, Dumbledore is gay and having it be nowhere in the text. Or, you know, the subsequent prequel films. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, a, if you don't include it in the text, it's, it's it can't be canon. I'm sorry. You know, you bring that up. One of the things that I admire is that the Legend of Korra, they had to say that the characters got together, and then they did a bunch of graphic novels after the show, and you know what they did? <laughs> they included it. They included Holy. it to make it text. Yeah. And hey, Rebecca Sugar risked Cartoon Network shutting down her show to have a gay wedding because they explicitly told her, hey, if you do this, we're going to cancel you. And she was like, all right, fine. <laughs> and they did. Uh-huh. They made good on their promise. Anyway, go on. But yeah, it. And it's also within this interview that uh, 
Mitchell discusses cancel culture in all but name with the same inflection used by, you know, the right wing whenever accountability takes place. And, like, going through, like, some of the archival elements from, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff from, like, the initial home media release to the Criterion release, there is, like, a certain vibe he gives off that I am not comfortable with, with with the way that he describes things and quick to point out, well, you can't do that today, but like in that tone of voice of, you know, the kind that I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, the politically correct, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, everything's too PC these days vibe. Yeah. Let's call it the people that don't know it's always sunny in Philadelphia exists by. <laughs> yeah. Again, I I started out, you know, thinking, hey, you know, this film's not that bad. And then it just got worse and worse the farther I dug. And even explaining some of my findings to other people, they they were just horrified at the content and the revisionism and I don't blame them. I don't blame them one bit. Like there are parts of Hedwig where I can say, okay, you know, I I can take this, I can make something out of it. And you know, this is a statement that I can stand by, but you have to excise it from everything else within the work. And given the facts that we've laid before y'all, it's kind of difficult. And it honestly sucks. It, it honestly does suck watching or viewing it through a trans lens. Because here's something that, yeah, knowing your cinematic history and trans portrayals, you know, you're iffy because of when it was released. And you know, digesting that work and, you know, you, you want to take away something good from it, but at the same time, there's too many outside factors involved that make this difficult to recommend to other people. Yeah. It also came out at a time where like there was hardly any representation and, uh, like it was just starting to creep into TV, but just in the broadest, broadest, broadest sense. And even then very uh, and very stereotyped. Yes, very much. That's one of the things you can definitely say it's of its time. At the same time, apparently it still lives like since, you know, the the creator changed stuff around. Drastically. Drastically, yeah then it's still or you know a reflection of that and at the same time like i can't speak uh any further to that but yeah it, it, it it's a weird thing it, it is it is a it is a very weird thing and it's not like there's quote-unquote problematic material that is queer i mean john waters exists <laughs> yeah John but, Waters is his own thing. <laughs> yeah. I love that guy, and I'm scared to death of his movies. Like, personally, I think Female Trouble is an absolute riot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, it's trashy, but that's also the whole point. You see Divine go from, you know, this innocent little schoolgirl... And just because she didn't get her cha-cha heels, she goes all the way downhill to a life of crime and the electric chair at the very end. There's no, yeah, there's no redemption for Divine's character. But that's also the point. Because if you were to play that same story as, you know, the conventional 50s melodrama that it often was, would have gone exactly the same way. Well... John Waters did the 50s melodrama. It was called Polyester. I was about to touch on Polyester, damn it. Because <laughs> oh. I was about to get to the point that one of the things that I love about Waters, and I heard this brought up on 80s all over uh, today when I was listening to an old episode of it, was that 
Waters was smart enough to figure out that Divine and Tab Hunter were like one of the great comedy duos that we only sadly got two films from. Mm-hmm. And I agree. We could have had infinitely more films between those two. Yeah. But yeah, I, there's stuff out there. You just need to know how to dissect it and think critically of things instead of having it be spoon fed, which yeah, there's definitely more out there than there was, especially, you know, well, yeah, there was, a, there was stuff out there in 2001, but you know, not near enough access to it. Right. And even, even today, you know, we still get the queer films put out by the major studios, but it's more and more that you need to dive into the indie scene like deep into the indie scene in order to find stuff that's, I don't want to say authentic, but just like stuff that's a little freer in a way of expression. Because again, this Hedwig only had $6 million as a budget and they workshopped things with Sundance Labs. This had indie-ish backing and it was released under the fine line features the indie arm of new line cinema so technically yes it is independent but independent in the sense of like it had backing (laughs) it had backing it it had high-ish studio backing Yeah, yeah indie is a weird term anymore it is it is and really at this point that's kind of the only way to go and like i said this in last year's pride episode and i'll say it again it's like the only way that we're gonna you know see ourselves is without as much restraint in in the indie scene and even then you gotta do it yourself yeah i don't have much more to say other than like a very uh reluctant recommend for this film I kind of feel like Michael Douglas at the end of Traffic, where it's like, look, I'm sure you're here to listen and learn. Yes. Oh, yes. All right. So, of course, you know, all the usual stuff. You can find us at uh, theomniplex.org. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash theomniplex. You know, Twitter, same, at theomniplex. Email us at theomniplexpodcast at gmail.com. Like us, rate us on uh, iTunes. I guess you don't do likes on iTunes. Well, I guess it's Apple Podcasts now. Questions, comments, snide remarks. Snide remarks. We take snide remarks. Suggestions, anything. And, uh, you know, tell a friend. Tell a friend if you like this cast. Little stuff like that helps us out a lot. So we appreciate y'all. So we will be back next time. The loser